and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us. Today, we chat with Yael Averbush. Yael has played professional soccer for 10 years now. Before that, she played at University of North Carolina, which has one of the most historic, storied college sports programs in the country. Uh, We'll get into her coach there, Anson Dorrance, who is a legend in the coaching world, and also what it was like and the experience of playing at that level, as well as her experience playing at the professional level as well. Yael is also someone who is obsessed with technique and skill development, so much so that she created a platform for developing technique in soccer, or or what she would call football. So she has a company called Technique Football, which really aims to develop people's skills and their techniques, and people are using it all over the country to develop their skills and their technique. So we'll get into how she does that and how she thinks about skill development. Also, we'll get into her mindset and how she has set her mind throughout her life to achieve the things that she has wanted to achieve. So this is a great conversation. It's rich in content. Yael is somebody who is very singularly focused on developing herself for her sport. And she's achieved what a lot of people that are 11, 12 years old in the soccer community are trying to achieve, which is play professionally. So I know you'll love this conversation. And when you do, if you could do us a favor and write us a review over on iTunes, it really does help us grow our community. If you could share it on Twitter or on Instagram, that is also extremely helpful and useful. And once again, a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson, and you can also follow us on Instagram at intentional underscore performers. Uh, So thank you to everybody who has supported the podcast up until this point. We are winding down the year and we will have some announcements for you shortly, but it has been a great year for us and we really appreciate you listening. Um, But for now, I want to introduce you to Yael. And as we talk with her, I encourage you to think about your process, your goals, your vision, your dreams, and how you're constantly trying to acquire the skills necessary to master your craft. So without further ado, I present to you, Yael Averbush. Yael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you 
joining us. We were connected by a former podcast guest. Shout out to Joanna Lohman. And uh, I'm just, I've been following you on social media. I know you're very active there. So I'm excited to talk with the human and not just see the 140 characters, or I don't know if you have it extended now, but the characters that are on uh, Twitter. Uh, But what I'd love to do is just find out right off the bat about your mindset. So you play professional soccer and professional soccer we're going to get into uh, for females is different than males uh, in this country, but you're part of a league that's trying to grow and trying to evolve. Uh, But tell me a little bit about uh, what it's been like for you to play at an elite level. And if you can give us insight right off the bat as to how you set your mind for performance, I would love to find out about that. Yeah. You know, since I was really young, I have, always been a very serious person. So um, it's never been hard for me to be motivated and disciplined. And I think my mindset from the time I was like, almost when I just started playing soccer, and I said I wanted to be a professional, I didn't even know what that meant. Um, I was probably nine, I think I wrote it in my journal when I was nine, I wanted to be a professional soccer player. Um, From that time, honestly, until now, um, I've obviously learned a lot and gained a lot of perspective, but my mindset has been pretty similar. And it's um, one of, I would say, the concept of of constant improvement and trying to always maximize like there's always something that can be done to get better and get closer to my final you know not final vision but my ultimate vision of the soccer player and person I want to be so it's kind of like you're always chipping away at that final version and I felt like that you know since I was a young kid I had that that vision of myself uh, as an adult playing professional soccer and I you know, uh, it seemed really far away and it was, and you know, you slowly start to chip away at it and trust that the work you're putting in is getting you closer and closer. And it's been really cool over the years to watch that happen. But now still as a professional have that desire to continue to get better and put in that work. Where does that come from? So you're young and you have a, a vision and B this mindset of, I just need to keep getting better, keep improving. Any idea where that developed, where it evolved? Oh, my, my parents are huge in terms of that. And I didn't realize it, I think, as much until recently, coming back home as an adult. Just um, It was nothing they really said, but my parents are both uh, lifelong athletes. They're long-distance runners. So I would wake up every morning as a young kid, and my parents had already done their workout for the day and had showered, made breakfast or whatever. And that was every single day. Like There was never an excuse, like, oh, it's cold out. We didn't go out for a run or um, – you know, I couldn't, I didn't have time today. I was tired. Like I never heard an excuse. It was just something they did every single day. And so for me, it was kind of understood that like whatever you're, you are, if you're an athlete, if you're a painter, if you're a musician, like you, you do that thing every day. There's never a reason not to do it or not to work on getting better at it. So I think, um, now I think it's funny cause I come home and like, if it's snowing in the winter, my parents are jump roping in the house and doing all kinds of th- crazy things to get their workout in. But it, it really, uh, shows me the mindset that I grew up with is that there's no, no excuses. You, you get your work done every day. So you saw, uh, in action, this idea of consistency and consistently working on your craft or working at what you do. But there's days where you probably don't feel like working out. I'm sure there were days that your parents probably didn't feel like going for a run. Uh, I'm sure you grew up, where did you grow up? Uh, Northern New Jersey. So middle of winter, they're yeah. still going out for runs in, in snow and in, in rain and uh, cold temperatures. So how do you make sense of, well, I don't feel like doing this today, but I'm still going to do it. You know, I think 
there's huge momentum in habit, I think. Uh, And it almost takes away the whole thought of like, I don't want to do this because it's almost like if you have developed the habit, you're not even really making a conscious choice. It's not like, will I go for a run today or not? It's just, you're going for the run. It's like, and that's just what you do during the day. Some days it's obviously more enjoyable and easier to do it than others. And there are those days when you're going to be tired of the weather. You know, I've done, gone out and done some workouts and some sleet and wind. And I'm like, this is miserable. But there was no question in my mind is like, would you do it or not? Is that, that was my workout. I needed to get done that day. You got to push through. And I actually find, I find that there's fun and joy in in those times. It's like the time when it's pouring rain and you really didn't want to do it. How good do you feel when you get back from that run? So I kind of think there's a, uh, there's a momentum, but it also becomes a fun momentum because hopefully something that you're doing every single day is something you enjoy for the most part. Obviously there are those rough days, but if you can find the joy in that and the, the joy and the pride and the fact that you do go out and do it even when you're not 100% thrilled about it. I think, um, yeah, I think it just, it comes down to momentum. It's such an interesting thought, um, which is letting the habit drive the action. And if you build good habits, then it'll take care of the action. And I have a couple of thoughts running through my head, which is like, you talked about things being fun and the fun may not be running in the freezing cold or uh, in the rain or in the hot heat uh, or, or humid weather, but what you associated is associated with is the fulfillment being the fun and that sense of fulfillment that you get from doing hard things and doing challenging things gives you joy. And I think there's sort of this notion of instant gratification and thinking that that gives you joy. But I, I like to separate pleasure and happiness. Like I can get pleasure from eating a steak with nobody at dinner and sitting in a corner and I can get like literally pleasure from eating the steak with a good glass of wine. But is that happiness? And I think what you're talking about is building routines to give you more sustaining happiness based on self-fulfillment, which is a pretty powerful thing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't actually, I like how you framed that because I didn't actually think of it like that when I said it, but um, no, but it's totally the case. It's that, the idea that the body of work is what's enjoyable. Like you're set out on this mission and it's who you are. It doesn't mean every moment of it, like you said, feels good or anything like that, but it's in the act of pushing through that. That's part of the body of work. So I think it's kind of, yeah, it's the bigger perspective. You know, if you don't have any plan and you just randomly go out and are going to exercise every day, then yeah, some days it's not fun or it's miserable. There's no, there's no reason to do it. But if you have a set routine and you've done it for years and years, um, it's pretty cool to say like, Oh, I didn't miss that day just cause it was hard. And I, I find a lot of joy in that personally. Maybe I'm a little bit psycho though. I think, I don't know if everyone feels that way, but I think it's definitely a certain type of mindset to enjoy, like you said, conquering maybe those more difficult things. And you said your parents were distance runners. Uh, or what did they run? Just give me a little more background on that. Yeah, so both of them um, do still on occasion do road races, but they're not competing anymore. Which is still interesting that they they're not competing. They have no uh, really reason, quote unquote, to be doing this, but they still do their workouts every single day. I think they just that's just who they are. Um, but my dad actually competed very seriously. He um, ran cross country and track at Rutgers University and was um, his he was actually fifth in the Boston Marathon, which is like wow. his his uh, probably best performance. Um, Real and my quick, mom, can I just interject there? Uh, Americans finishing in the top five at the Boston Marathon. I, I'm ignorant, but I'm uh, is how common is that? Uh, I, yeah, not that 
uh, I don't know that much about this, but I think I think maybe in the I mean, my dad's not that old, but maybe in the era in which he did that, it wasn't so uncommon. But yeah, usually, I mean, now if you look at the top five finishes of most of the marathons, you don't see many Americans. Um, I think there was a, a crew of American runners though during that time that were you know pushing the limits and doing pretty well. Because my dad was um, he he went to the Olympic trials but never qualified for the Olympics, so it kind of shows he was like on the cusp of being, um, you know an Olympian, but just, you know, a very elite runner. And then my mom, uh, didn't compete as seriously, but again, lifelong runner has run many marathons herself. And just, um, I think, you know, I think for them watching them, it's like also it's mental. It's like the mental sanity part of it. It's like how you just every day get out, get out and move and get out a little bit of your frustrations. And it's kind of like meditative to them, I think, to have that routine every day. It's interesting because I'm going up to New York this weekend. I'm going to see the New York Marathon. My brother's running in it. And we have a lot of conversations about the mindset of runners. And I put runners and swimmers uh, into the same category, which is their pain sports, especially distance swimmers. Um, So it's monotonous and it can be painful. And your ability to push through that pain and keep going one step at a time or one stroke at a time uh, is massive. And I think people don't understand that soccer actually has an element of pain as well. So uh, I don't know how much, how many miles you typically run in a game, but I know I've talked to soccer players. It's usually like seven, eight miles, something in that range. I think people watching soccer players don't realize what they actually are spending energy wise throughout the course of a game and for 90 minutes, just movement and constant movement. Can you talk a little bit about how that endurance works in a soccer game? And the word fitness is used in soccer that, and it's not necessarily used in hockey or football or baseball or basketball, some of the other mainstream team sports that we have. So talk about pain and endurance and how you have to deal with that over the course of a season. Yeah, you know, soccer is a very physical sport, not in terms of even just being like combative physically, but just a lot of movement and a lot of different types of movement. And I think, like you said, if you just watch a game and you don't know that much about the sport, it's easy to miss a lot of that. But um, I would say that the the preparation to be able to play a 90-minute soccer game on a full-size field, yeah, you have to do actual fitness and push through pain. And a lot of – it's different than long-distance running or swimming where it's um, kind of monotonous one speed because, you know, in soccer you have to be able to move at a lot of different speeds, a lot of different directions. So it's helpful to train more soccer-specific type running. But, yeah, it's it's painful to get to the point where you can – Probably, I would say the most, the best way to think of it in soccer is that if over 90 minutes, if you, whatever your top speed is in, as an athlete, which varies, you need to be able to produce a top sprint um, 30 to 40 times over those 90 minutes and still, and not let that speed drop off by the end of the game, but then also still constantly be moving in between. So it's not like you get to rest in between and moving sometimes at like a three quarter pace type run. So um, it's really interesting because there's there's a lot in terms of strength, speed, endurance, fitness, um, conditioning, whatever, you know, some of those terms overlap, obviously, but there's so much that goes into the game to be able to perform well. And that's just, you know, it's unlike running or swimming, that's just to prepare your body to be able to perform the skills with the ball. So then there's a whole other layer on top of it. So yeah, definitely um, there's an element, the physical element of pushing through and pushing through towards the end of the game and still on top of that pushing through the physical pain still having the mental and physical clarity to execute skills well yeah and when the body gets tired the mind gets lazy and so the decision making process becomes a lot harder if you're not 
fully fit. And that's why you'll see sometimes teams sub people in for 20 minutes because their fitness might not be where they need to be. And I think as fans sitting on the sideline, we sometimes struggle to understand that. But the decision-making, the, the sharpness that you have to have is is essential for, for a soccer player. Why go into soccer? Why not go into running? Uh, you've got these two models that are you know, competing at a high level. They are doing it daily. It's a part of what you're seeing in your household. Why not follow that track? What led you in, in the direction of soccer? Yeah, to be honest, I probably, if I hadn't have uh, kind of stumbled upon soccer, I may have taken running pretty seriously because I think for me, whatever, we were a very active family, so I think I would have gotten involved in some sport. Um, but I think whatever it was I ended up kind of latching onto, even if it was music or something else, I would have been super serious. And it happened to be soccer because – um, in first or second grade, my best friend at the time played soccer. And actually I went to go watch, uh, one of her games with my dad and they needed an extra player. Cause like someone didn't show up and I was so ner- I was too shy. I was too scared to play. So I didn't play. And then afterwards I kind of regretted it. Cause I was like, Oh, that looked like fun. And I remember coming home and telling my mom, you know, Oh, there was a, the four, I think I said there were four words. There were backwards. I didn't understand. <laughs> I was like telling her all about it. And then, uh, I remember being interested and kept, I kept talking about it. So my dad signed me up for the next season and, you know, it was all history from there. I don't, I don't really, rem- it's interesting to try to think about it. I, I remember liking it from the beginning, but I don't remember how I so quickly enjoyed it so much that that was all I wanted to do. And I wanted to be a professional, but I guess, uh, the practice sessions must've been really fun. <laughs> were you shy? You mentioned that you were, you're shy for soccer. Okay. Were you shy as a kid? Yeah, I was pretty shy. Um, I would say, all the way up through maybe even going to college. I was pretty shy. I uh, would not have considered myself a social person at all. Um, I kind of just did my own thing a lot. Uh, I mean, I had, I had friends and I obviously was had teammates, which is always a friend group, but I didn't, um, I definitely was more of an introvert for a long time. And when did that change? You said college started to change a little bit or uh, was it gradual? Was there, was there a moment that led to that? I think for me, a huge thing was going to college. Going to college um, really changed my perspective on a lot of things, including my, you know, friendships and relationships with people because college was the first time when I met a group of people who I felt like were really similar to me. Um, you know, growing up in, in high school and stuff, I was very serious about what I did. You know, stalker is my passion. I was extremely driven. I mean, still am, but at, for a younger kid, it was probably outside the norm. Uh, so I couldn't connect with that many people. Cause you know, most kids in middle school and high school, they're a little aimless. They're not, not that many people are like on a life path mission to, to become a professional at something at that point yet, even if they, you know, enjoy doing some extracurricular activities. So college was the first time where I met a group of people at the university of North Carolina, which is, you know, a, historic soccer program where a lot of the top players in the country come. I met a group of people, you know, 20 to 30 people deep who all felt the same way as I did about soccer. And it was everything to them from, you know, what they chose to eat, sleep, their training. They, they dealt with it the same way as me. So that was the first time I really connected with people. And I think that allowed me to be a little more comfortable to be myself. And I, that's when I think I started to become a little less shy. Why did you have this dream? So like, like you said, there's, you know, a lot of other kids just are in middle school or in high school and they're just in that moment. But you have this vision, this dream. Any, I still want to try to understand and unpack, like, what was the drive there? Why was that such a drive? 
Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think back, it doesn't really make sense to me because it's like, it is a little weird. Um, I, I, I think it's kind of, it was like the understanding in my household. And I think, and also kind of where I grew up in northern New Jersey, a suburb of New York City, is that people here do cool, big things. Like, it wouldn't be outside the norm to say if you were like a, playing, uh, you know, softball that you wanted to like become a professional baseball player or something, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be weird for someone in school who's an artist to, to think that they wanted to, you know, have a, an exhibit and be a professional artist. That's the kind of things that people do like where I grew up. And I think that I was, you know, my parents mindset and something is that if you do something, you try to be the best at it. And for me, when we learned like who the best was, we did a little research and know anything about soccer. You, you know, you come up with the university of North Carolina, you come up with the U S women's national team to be the best at soccer is to be a professional soccer player and to, to do those things. So we started, you know, we rented some VHS tapes from the soccer catalog and we, I would watch, um, you know, the UNC Tar Heels, like every season, the national championships I watched over and over. I know the tapes by heart. I would watch, you know, any, any soccer we could watch. So to me, I think it was just, it's a little bit my personality, a little bit where I grew up. I think it's just, if you really enjoy something and you want to be the best at it, it's like kind of a, the next logical conclusion is that you develop this vision of, okay, well, like, even if you're young, that's what you can do. Uh, how do you get there? You've, you, you consult some experts, you figure out the things you need to be doing and you start off on the path. So it didn't seem weird to me at the time, but now that I think back, it's very weird that like a nine or 10 year old would have that thought. But what I'm hearing from you is I was in an environment that told you, go be great, you know, go do special things. Uh, you had a, family that had done some special things athletically. So it wasn't a big deal that you would then do that athletically. Uh, and then you had this maybe innate drive or passion to go toward that notion of let's go be the best at this sport. Was there any role model from a soccer standpoint? Um, and also pro soccer, because you said, I want to be a pro soccer player. I wonder how you thought about that back then. So two part question. One, was there a soccer player that inspired you or that you looked up to? And the second part is, why is it the idea of being a pro soccer? And, and, and just curious about those words that you chose to use. Yeah. Uh, I mean, growing up, the, the women from the 99 World Cup team were all my idols. And I, that was a huge thing for me, actually, when I started to develop this like idea, for whatever reason, of what it, why I wanted to be a pro soccer player. Uh, it was right around the time that they, they were coming to New Jersey for the opening game of the 1999 World Cup. So I actually got to go uh, to a, a training session of theirs, and I went to the opening game. So I saw it up up front and like up close and personal. And that group of women, I mean, not even one of them, but just uh, Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly, you know, Julie Foudy, Brandy Chastain, those were literally, I was watching like what I wanted to be. And I was watching them train and I would, I, I definitely, I remember we, we remembered the things they did in training. I tried them with my dad, you know, probably later that night or whenever we got home. And it was just like, okay, so I'm seeing these people doing this. This is these are who, who I want to be. I wanted, I had, you know, picture cut out pictures of Mia Hamm and, uh, Tisha Venturini and quotes from them on my wall. It was just like, those were the people I wanted to be. Um, and in terms of being a professional soccer player, I think like 
at the time there was no professional league for women in the country. So to me that meant, and I think I looped in, you know, playing at UNC, even though obviously playing in college is not professional, but to me being a professional soccer player meant playing at UNC and then playing on the national team because that was what these women were doing. And, um, you know, I, I try to think back now of what I thought it was going to be like to be a professional soccer player, because the reality of it is that, you know, there wasn't a league when I said that there for one year of, uh, my career, there was no U.S. league, so I had to go overseas and was in some weird situations and move away from home. I mean, I've had I've played for now I don't even know how many six, seven, eight different clubs, moving around all the time. And I try to think back and think, um, you know, obviously I'm living I'm living the dream that I had as a kid, which is there are some amazing moments where I really feel that and I'm so proud and I feel so much gratitude. And then there's some times when it's rough and I'm like moving somewhere new that I don't want to be moving and I'm tired and I'm thinking like, what did I think this was going to be when I was a kid? <laughs> but, uh, so it's really, it's interesting to think back and I don't really know where that idea came from, but I think that, um, I saw those idols and that's who they were. They were getting paid to do that. Probably not that much at the time. I had no idea, but, uh, the idea that that, like, if you were a, a, one of the boys in my class and they, say what they want to be when they grow up they want to be professional basketball players baseball players so I thought okay I play soccer I'll be one one of those <laughs> did you play other sports growing up no I was so I'm really single-minded like every, my parents tried to get me to play different sports get involved in other things uh I am so not well-rounded now because I just when I do one thing and I enjoy it and I'm into it I don't want to spend my energy on anything else I don't see why you would divide your energy if you love doing one thing so I never would do anything else and now I'm embarrassed every time I have to like shoot a basketball or something it's horrible <laughs> just uh just kick it kick it in the hoop and you'll be okay yeah though sometimes like if my team will go bowling or do things like that I'm <laughs> so bad I hate all those things <laughs> take me to UNC and I, I don't think everyone that's listening to this has an idea of how successful UNC women's soccer has been, um, one of the most dominant programs in all of sports. So A, give me the stats on UNC soccer. And then B, we're going to have to talk about Coach because he's also a legend. So I, I would love to get insight into him and also just paint the picture of what it means to play for UNC's women's soccer team. Yeah, so I might be a little behind on the actual stats, but basically um, the UNC's women women's soccer program kind of got a jump start on in women's soccer across the whole country. It was like the first uh, college soccer program that I think, you know, started to dominate, but also like took it really seriously. All the, that was probably the first time that, that a female soccer player would choose to go to a university to play for the soccer team. I don't think there'd be any reason to do that before uh, UNC's program started. So um, and, and I'm not sure really why there, why, why that would have happened there. But um, from the very beginning, Anson Dorrance, who's like probably one of the most famous coaches in coaching history, let alone soccer, he was in charge right from the beginning and set up a system um, that's based totally on competition and the idea that competing against your teammates uh, is what will ultimately make you better and prepare you best for game day when you compete against your opponents. So if you can compete against your teammates all week, even harder than you would compete against your opponent, like game day feels like a breeze. So that's kind of his whole philosophy um, that from the very beginning he's developed and it's stuck until now. So he calls it the competitive cauldron. And the whole system there is based on these competitions and being ranked in everything you do. So there's no secret. If you want to know like, oh, coach, why am I not playing? Well, you look at the rankings and if you're not in the top 11 to 13 players, 
you're not going to play. That means you're, you know, on paper, you are worse than those other players. So it's very blunt. It's very, uh, it's brutal, but it, I mean, if you talk about getting better, there's no better way to improve quicker than to be forced to go absolutely all out and focus on every little detail you do every single day in training. So, um, yeah, that's kind of like the gist of the program. I think that the program now has won, and this this could be off. I want to say twenty five national championships. Um, so, I mean, that's like the, a dynasty like no other. You know, it, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about this notion of competitiveness because I always say there's more than one way to eat a Reese's. And so let's just say Major League Baseball as an example. One of the best managers in Major League Baseball is Bruce Bochy with the San Francisco Giants, and his whole thing is I'm going to play the best player. And we're going to look at the past to figure out who is the best player. And that's who I'm putting in. Whereas someone like Joe Madden, who's with the Chicago Cubs, who's also seen as one of the best managers, is going to try to develop a culture and really help people develop as humans and go outside the box and be you know, unconventional. Or I look at the NFL and you've got Pete Carroll with the Seattle Seahawks, who's all about developing humans. But then you have Bill Belichick, who's all about just do your job and, you know, focus on doing your jobs. So I say all this because I believe that there are so many different ways to create winning teams and winning cultures. But back to UNC, it's it's just so crystal clear that this is going to be about competition and the cream is going to rise to the top and we're going to play the people that have earned the right to play. And you can't complain because here are the numbers and here's the information. So I find that to be a very clear way. Uh, it's it's not subjective and it's hard to complain when you when you have the the data to show that hey this is why you're playing or this is why you aren't. I'm curious about your sort of mindset or mantra of I'm going to keep getting better. I'm going to constantly improve. And how you meshed that with is it time to improve or is it time to compete? And how are those different and how are those similar? Because improvement often requires failure and learning and growth. But if you are constantly being measured and constantly competing against people, where do you find the time to improve? Yeah, and that's interesting. I think I was going to initially say, as you started the question, I think they're one and the same. Um, but that, that is one of the drawbacks of the UNC system is that the stress of the system and the concern with remaining at the top of the ranks could make you nervous to try something creative or maybe, you know, be afraid of failure as opposed to just seeking success. And I think that mindset in an athlete and like I've seen it in myself, we've all know this feeling if you're really honest with yourself of when you're doing something and competing because you don't want to fail or when you're you feel free and you're just trying to compete to win. And I mean, I know for myself, I, I never compete well. If I feel that fear, I always compete well when I feel the confidence and I'm going to seek the win. Um, but I think that, I mean, I think the idea of improving comes hand in hand with being competitive and it being competitive can mean a lot of things. It can mean just trying to win against your teammate, but it also can mean being competitive with yourself. So if it's that you finished, um, you know, eighth on the speed chart last year, well, like, can you get to seventh or sixth? So I think that, yeah, there's definitely a fine line. And I found at times that someone who's already like extremely type A and going to be compete, like keeping track of things in my own head, sometimes seeing the rankings and stuff was just overkill for me. I was just, it just stressed me out so much. Um, and there is the potential that pl- some players on the team wouldn't fully develop the 
their creativity because they were, you know, nervous about making mistakes. But to be honest, that that fits, you know, the the competitive nature and the way it gets players to play fits within the the game day concept of UNC's system. So if it was a different type of system with a lot of free flowing decision making and you want people to be creative, yeah, then you have to train and allow for that. But if you want people to just literally win their individual battles and crush the other team, then you got to train for that. And that's what the team trains for. And that's what they do on the field for the most part. So I have this theory that people that are listening to this podcast here, most podcasts, I bring it up because uh, it's at the core of all the work that I do, that your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. So I actually think fear of failure can be a massively valuable tool if I'm working on technique and I need it to be perfect. And, you know, I'm not leaving this field until it's right. And I'm not, I'm, I'm going to get it right because not starting is not an option for me. Um, like there is no option there. Um, and I think, you know, it's really good to be humble when we're working on skills and trying to improve but if you're humble once the game starts, that can be really detrimental. And so, like, I think what he did was he got you into that performance mindset of you're going to have to be fearless, you're going to have to be confident, you're going to have to constantly stay in that performance mindset uh, all the time. And, and that is in some ways brilliant because what we do in sports is often the opposite of that. So we spend so much time, you know, being humble, uh, fearing failure, being perfectionist, uh, being neurotic, like watching film, getting our footwork right, making sure that we're hitting the ball and striking the ball exactly as we want it. And so most of sports are set up to really pull out that preparation mindset that you need to improve, that you need to acquire skill. But the mistake that they make, and I actually think the generation that's coming up is so skilled, they're so good at that preparation mindset, but they're not getting enough experience of just saying, all right, now you've acquired the skill, now let go, and now be fearless, and now compete. Um, so that push-pull to me is so interesting, and I would imagine he created a culture that you have to just be fearless and compete. And while I know that the numbers are there and I know where I stand, my job is to just be to go for it and to beat the person that's in front of me. Um, so it's a fascinating uh, case study, uh, and it's, it's just interesting to hear how he set it up. And for me, I'm a blender, so I like to have a little bit of everything, but there's something really valuable about being clear about this is what we value, and this is what we're going to do. And, and by the way, we're going to add the best talent in the country so that we can just know that when we line up next to the person, we're going to have the most talent and the most competitive, and that's a really good mixture to be successful. Yeah, and I think too, just to hit on what you said a little bit about um, the development part, like I think that UNC is a place, and you have to recognize the environment there in a certain way, is that you're going to, if your right foot is much stronger than your left foot, you're not going to get better at your left foot in those competitive moments because you need to win. And that would be stupid to work on your left foot in the competitive moments when you need to win because the only important thing is winning. So those things need to be supplemented. And that's, you know, that was a big, um, I'm, I'm huge into technique and anyone who knows anything about me will know that's like my thing. So for me, um, my mindset was always like, I would spend the extra time outside of training to make sure that I could do all the techniques so that they were ready for me in the competitive situations. And I think that burden a lot of times falls on the players and they expect the teams to prepare them in that way. But to me, uh, UNC has a good, you know, a good balance in there because really when you show up at training and you're with your group, the time should be spent to prepare 
for the performance moments. Um, you don't need to be with your group to work on the various techniques and skill acquisition. That can be extra stuff that you do on your own. And everyone needs different parts of that anyway, depending on what position they play. So to me, that's kind of the background work that you have to bring to the competitive environment because you're definitely not going to develop it in the heat of the moment. Like if I can't uh, do a certain dribbling move, there's no way I'm going to try that in my 1v1 com competition day when I'm being recorded if I won or lost. Like there's no chance. So I think it's it kind of um, that burden does fall on the players then in a system like this. I love it. I call them the ERs, extra reps. Uh, so you're strong. All right, how are you going to get stronger? You're fast, how are you going to get faster? You're fit, how are you going to get fitter? Like, where are you adding the ERs? Um, and so for I think, I think a lot of elite athletes and great athletes figure out what are the ERs that I need, and then how am I going to get the extra reps, whether it's skill, fitness, um, the mental side, uh, nutrition, where am I getting my ERs? And, and you can get them in all kinds of different places. Um, but I, that's something I constantly am talking about with athletes. It's like sleep can be an ER. Um, you know, where are you getting those extra reps so that you're right on game day when it's competition, I can be at my best. Um, so I just think to me, it's, it's so cool. All right. I want to get into the skill acquisition side because you just said, Hey, that's anyone that knows me knows that I'm into the technique. Uh, you're wearing a shirt that says technique. I don't know if I said that right. Um, that was good pronunciation. All right, I'm working on my pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, that's you. good. Like my wife is a speech therapist, so this is good practice. Yeah, it's so good I practice. So I don't get scalded when I when I go back home. Um, but talk to me about when you started to get really into skill and into the weeds on technique and this notion of player development and skill development, um, and and just walk us through your journey in that and when that started and and paint the picture of of all the work you're doing now as it relates to skill development. Yeah, so this was a, this was a part of the game that I connected with really early on, and it was because I had some really wonderful coaches and mentors kind of in the area where I grew up, and a lot of them were not actually from the U.S., which is good at the time because at the time, you know, like the mid-90s and stuff, soccer was still new enough here that if you had a coach from somewhere else, you were probably getting some better advice than an American coach. Um, so there were a few coaches around here, and they were from England, and when they knew that I was pretty serious, and they probably thought I was a little crazy because I was like a little kid being so serious about this, wanting my dad would ask if like anyone could do extra work with me and like show me things to practice. So we, we laugh sometimes and look back on like what people must have thought of us, but whatever. Um, but uh, those coaches showed me really early on the things that like you would need to master if you even want to consider yourself a decent soccer player. Like the idea of working on juggling, like I didn't know what that was and that you should probably try to use your feet and see if you can use both your feet. And then uh, I remember one time this coach took me out and worked on striking the ball with the laces of both feet. And like, this is a skill you, if you want to be good, you need to learn this. You need to learn it with both feet and it to learn it, it takes repetition. Um, and I did, a t I started to do a ton of extra little things with like coaches who would show them to me. And then obviously, you know, with my mindset, if a coach showed me something and I couldn't do it or I couldn't do it that well, I would definitely be practicing it every day until I saw the coach again. I would never go back and see that coach again without having then mastered that skill. So I think it was a combination of some really wonderful coaches who took the extra time with me to show me things and also my mindset of like, well, if someone shows me something I can't do, like I don't, you, there's no chance I would ever even talk to them again until Wait, I can do it. What is that though about you? Is it fear uh, of embarrassment? Like, is it? No, I think it's just like a personal challenge thing. It's like a, maybe a little bit of OCD or something, but like for me, um, there's a certain realm of, of things where if someone shows me something 
and I think it right now just applies to soccer because I'm trying to think. There's some people who show me a dance move or something. There's no way I'm going to try that. But um, yeah, it's like a pride. Is it like a pride? I think it's a little bit of pride. It's a competitiveness. It's yeah. like oh well, someone can do something that I can't do. Like I'm going to figure out how to do it. And it still applies today. Like if I see something now, it's all over the internet, like these tricks and stuff. And like when I see some of it's outside my range now, but like if you see someone try something, you have the urge to get a little competitive and be like, what? Can I do that? And then my can I do that turns into like two hours later with blisters on my feet of like, I finally did it and my legs are cramping. You, but, you said you said you're not like that when it comes to dance moves. Is there anything else in your life? And I know you're very singular minded uh, when it comes to soccer. Is there anything else in your world where you are like that? Uh, to be honest, I have to limit myself a little cause I know my personality. So like I'll see somebody do something in the gym or like run a certain time. And in my mind, I'm like, I wonder how close I could get, but like, I know that I shouldn't be doing that. So I think soccer is my safe place where I know it's okay to go out and try to do it as opposed to some other things. Like I either know I'm not good enough or, um, I don't have that same competitiveness, competitiveness. Um, do you have hobbies? No, so it's funny. My mom told me the other day I need to get a hobby. I don't have <laughs> hobbies because everything I do as my work is my hobby. Like I – my hobby would be to go out and kick the soccer ball around. My hobby would be to go like lift weights and listen to music or do yoga or you know running my business. Like I'm not going to take up a hobby when I, I find it fun to run my business and plan these soccer sessions. So um, I had this argument with my mom because she was like, no, you need a, a relaxing hobby. I was like, I'm not going to – choose to add another activity then I like the activities I'm doing so what do you um, what do you do to to unwind or what do you do to yeah. quiet your mind or or find that space away from that inner competitive critical mother effort <laughs> like what what yeah. do you do uh, that is a good question that's what I'm trying to figure out now I I'm like searching for things to do I um I don't have relaxation activities. I don't, I'm bad at relaxing. Like it sounds silly. But you said yoga. Did. What does yoga do for you? Uh, well, this is funny because yoga is relaxed. I've tried to do some yoga and meditation um, and I'm, I'm working on them. I'm not good at meditation. I'm really trying because my mind just goes everywhere. But um, yoga for me, uh, I, th I think I'll do yoga for the rest of my life. I think it's like the healthiest exercise and movement that anyone could do. And, and for me, it's allowed me um, a, a very long and relatively healthy career, knock on wood. So I think it keeps my body healthy, balanced. It's a little bit of strength and stability as well as the flexibility. And and I enjoy, I just enjoy doing it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's a pastime only because I am doing it because it's recovery for soccer. So like everything I do somehow gets tied in. There's like never a hobby or relaxation that's like not somehow tied into something. I'm, oh, I'm, re I'm relaxing so that I can go like lift weights later this evening or something. So I'm, I'm working on the relaxing part, but it's not my forte. But you're, you're obsessed with soccer. You're serious. You're intentional about everything you do with soccer, whether it's fitness, skill development, uh, watching film, trying to get better. You're still in that, in that space. Um, you know, I think when it comes to meditation, A, uh, it's hard. I think a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to meditate. B, I, I don't think meditation is about not thinking. I think it's about just directing your attention and being aware of your thinking. Uh, and then C, I think, People think that meditation has to be like you go to this quiet space and, you, you know, you're, you know, with your hands out on your legs and sort of in this pose. And one of the things that I've learned is, uh, you know, if you can sort of think about mindfulness and this notion of accepting thoughts as thoughts and using your breath also as a uh, centering action or uh, thinking of meditation more as a focus exercise rather than a, 
relaxation exercise. Um, and from a soccer standpoint, since you're so obsessed with it, you can actually leverage meditation for soccer. Um, so I think I'm not, I'm not a fan of saying that meditation is for everyone. Um, and I think there's, there's all, I know, there's all kinds of different meditation practices, but I think people often think of it as a relaxation tool instead of a focus tool. And I think when athletes are thinking of it as a focus tool, it shifts the value of the activity uh, for them. Um, but I think, A, it can be an intentional act in the morning or at night or, you know, in the afternoon. Um, but it also can be an intentional act throughout your day. Um, if you build the, the tools and you're able to, you can use the breath. You can uh, leverage the breath um, or you can listen to thoughts and, and be aware of them without putting judgment on them. So that's sort of how I've come to understand it. When I first started meditating, I was awful at it. I was terrible. I, I couldn't do it. I, my mind is too active. And I thought I had to quiet my mind. And why I've got, I don't think it's necessarily I've gotten better at meditation. I've just gotten better at understanding what it is. Um, so I don't know if that helps you at all, but that's how I've come to understand it. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm in the beginning of exploring that. And I, I do some really short, I, I like to actually listen to um, these little recordings I have because it kind of helps me to not just be like free out there in the in the space of silence. Um, but I think, you know, it's definitely something I, I am, um, although this is like counterintuitive to what meditation is supposed to be, I'm working on it, quote unquote, uh, because I think it's a really important thing for me. And like you said before, you know, I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, we use the word obsessed, but I am, I am so, um, into maximizing what I do mentally and physically that I have to intentionally get myself out of that thought process from time to time. So whether that's through some meditation, whether that's through actually taking time off instead of training, uh, that's the way that I need to counterbalance. So some people need to work harder and force themselves to do more. I've gotten kind of in a spiral of like, I can force myself to do unlimited amount of things, but what's actually better for me is, is less sometimes. I think we've gotten into a place in our society where we are working so many more hours than other societies. And the American way has always been to outwork. Um, and, you know, we had the 10,000 hour rule come up and people started saying, well, I need to put my hours in. Like I literally have interviewed people at the MLS combine that have told me like, I've acquired my 10,000 hours. And these people are 22 years old. Um, or we have the grit conversation now, which is saying like, if you keep working at it, passion and perseverance, you'll obtain your long-term goals, which obviously you have done. So it's not all bad. Um, but I think when we overuse something, that strength becomes a weakness. Um, so for example, you use the idea of using your right foot. You know, if I'm just using my right foot for everything, because that's how I've gotten to a certain level and I ignore my left foot, then all of a sudden they're just going to start, uh, shading me to my left. And now that right foot that's gotten me to where I'm at is no longer effective. So I think your idea of getting better and improvement is saying, I'm also going to approach my left foot and, and work on that. And so I think overtraining is something we're now seeing and, um, you know, lack of sleep. There's really good science around now, the importance of sleep and how it can impact performance. So it is interesting as science continues to evolve and human development continues to evolve. And we start thinking about how do we optimize ourselves? And I think we're all different. So we need to just be self-aware and then self-reflective about when am I at my best? When am I at my worst? And what habits, like you said earlier, can lead to me being at my best. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what I thought of when you were saying that is that 
I think that it's kind of twofold and it's a balance because, um, and everything obviously in life is the best way to do it is to be in balance. But, um, yeah, there are all these ways to maximize now. And especially in this day and age, we have so many ways to track things and like keep track and make sure we're, uh, you know, doing enough, even, even things to track sleep to make sure you're like getting in the right sleep rhythms and all those things. And I think it's, easy because and especially in sports you see there's always the newest greatest gadget you see the commercial for something like oh in just 15 minutes burn five times the amount of calories and do all these things but i think in soccer it's really important to to remember that soccer is a simple sport at the end of the day and in some ways there is no replacement for certain types of work and people always trying to um, I, and, and I bring this back to technique because I'm specifically thinking about technique as people are trying to, you know, maximize, well, if you use this certain type of rebounder, you can like do the same work in half the time and all those things. But no, like technique is one of the few things where there is no shortcut to putting in the repetition. Um, and obviously you can overdo it if you're like straining your muscles cause you're training too much at it and stuff like that. But really it's one of the few things that's like pretty hard to overdo. And there's also no limit to how consistent you can be. Like you can always, even the best players in the world at the most simple skills can get more consistent. So it's one of those, uh, I think fine lines between realizing like there are people who actually are working too hard and need to cut back and are like overtraining. And then there are people who use data to limit their training and and try to do all these fancy things when really like no you got to put it in the base amount of work for it to to happen yeah and i want to be clear hard work matters talent matters mindset matters nutrition matters sleep matters there's a lot of buckets that go into success but the three main ones are the technical the physical and the mental right so if we know for a long time we focus so much on the physical right but but in the 80s Teams didn't have strength coaches, so they weren't working on the physical as much as they are today. Um, so we've gotten so much better on the physical and the physiology, physiology that goes into performance. Um, we've gotten better at the mental. There's a whole psychology of sport, which I'm involved with. The technical piece, though, to me, is the one that you can acquire. The it, It's the – I want to phrase this the right way. You can get more fit, but nobody can ever go from being slow to fast. So if I'm slow, I'm not going to be fast. So while fitness is massive, especially in your sport, it's hard to acquire speed. Um, Mental, there's definitely a a nature component and there's definitely a nurture component. Um, So we do have tendencies and our job is to nurture our nature. Um, And then from a technical standpoint, sure, you have developed skills because you grew up in Argentina playing on the street and you're able to have that ball on your foot. Um, and that is a skill, but you can still develop that technical side and that skill side. So I want to get into the weeds with you. What are some things that you've done for yourself as a pro athlete? And you've been playing soccer for, for 10 years. So if you want to get into the weeds on professional, your, your pro journey, please do so. But I want to know technically what you've done to improve your skill level over your career. And it might even go back to that, those times when you were growing up and you were trying to find different ways, but share with us some things that you do from a technique standpoint to get better and improve on your, on your craft. Yeah, I think it's about putting in the time and that's like a huge, a huge thing I've done over the years and and consistent amount of time. So I, I kind of, um, you know, I think about what I did as a kid and I would do, you know, 
in gymnastics or something, you have to be out, you have to be there for four or six hours. Soccer's not like that. So, you know, as a kid, I would go up to the schoolyard at night, spend 30 to 45 minutes with the ball against the wall. And my dad would come out, we would joke about things. It was a social experience, but 30 to 45 minutes of working on technique of striking the ball against a wall. It comes back every time. It's consistent. You can do tons of work in that amount of time. So I wasn't doing anything crazy over the years, but if you think about adding up, if I did that uh, four to five days a week for, I mean, almost 20 years, like until I went to college. And then in college, that was my habit, and that's my thing I do to relax. So I would go in the racquetball court and spend time dribbling, juggling, uh, striking the ball, taking a bag of balls out to the field and getting repetitions of shots. And that that part of the game is so enjoyable to me because as you were talking about all the different elements of the game, like you said, you know, speed is one area you can you can get a little better, but you're not gonna go from being a, a uncoordinated slow athlete to like a ridiculously fast one. Is as a professional, one of the biggest things I think um has been really identifying the things that you can control. Um and for me uh, there were areas of the game I thought I couldn't control that then I found an expert to help me control. Like, for example, my general athleticism and speed and explosiveness. Yeah, I'm not going to totally reinvent myself as an athlete, but there were areas where I've gotten significantly stronger and faster over these last couple of years from working with uh, my performance coach named Chris Gores. So those were things that became something that was in my control. Your endurance, like you alluded to, is always in your control. You can go out and you can get fitter and be able to move for longer. And technique, for me, is something that's 100% in your control, but also, like you were kind of saying, there's the biggest room for improvement, I think, in technique, if you look at it. Like uh, speed, yeah, you can get a little bit faster. Endurance, at some point, you're going to wear your body down, so you got to be careful. Technique, like you can always strike the ball more accurately and, and harder. If you do, even if you look at the best free kick takers in the world, Messi's free kicks could still be more consistent. You look at, you know, first touch. Your first touch can be perfect 20 times out of 20 with no pressure, but then the one time you need to do it in the game, it doesn't come off right. So can you get it up to being 50 out of 50 perfect with no pressure? And then maybe the one time in the game when you have pressure, it'll come off. So, um, not only is it something that I think you can control, which is why it's so appealing to me and why I've spent so many hours over the years, um, but it's also it's enjoyable because you can feel that control and you can feel yourself getting better. And it's kind of a for me, it's meditative in a certain way. You know, kicking the ball against the wall and getting into a rhythm of doing it right and seeing how many reps you can do cleanly and correctly, uh, something like that is incredibly fun to me, just because it feels good. And it's, it's something I've developed over the years. That's like, I feel proficient at it. So I think that's so important as an athlete to have that area of the game. And it's different for everyone where you feel like you're in control. You can get better at any given moment. You understand how to get better and you feel the proficiency. So it's enjoyable to get better. Competence is so important for an athlete. And once they realize that they're competent at something, then the confidence can flow. Um, so people talk about preparation leading to confidence, but if you really look at it, it's, it's about competence and, you know, I could be the most confident dude on the planet, but if you and I go and try to have a, a penalty kick competition right now, you would crush me, uh, because I'm not competent or proficient to use your word enough to beat you. And you could have low confidence, you know, you could be, you know, coming off an injury, whatever, you're still going to be more competent. I think athletes often think about how they feel rather than what they are. And feelings go up and down. They have a shelf life. They'll expire. Um, but what you are, your competence level, that should just be sort of fundamental and foundational for, for what you want to do and, and who you want to 
be as an athlete. Um, one of the things that was triggered for me is people I don't think are that aware of what is going on in sports today where there's this huge player development movement. And uh, especially in the NBA, guys are getting so much better once they get to the pros. So you have guys who weren't great shooters and then they're working with a shooting coach and all of a sudden they're great three-point shooters because now they've got the time to put in the work to become a, a more efficient shooter. And they're actually transforming guys' shooting mechanics in the NBA. And every NBA team now has player development coaches on their, on their roster. And their job is to work with that guy on his individual skills and maximize their skills for performance. And you're seeing a little bit in soccer. Um, you're certainly seeing it in baseball with swing coaches. You see it in golf with swing coaches, in tennis. So um, for a long time, we've seen it in the individual sports, but it's really starting to creep in to the team sports, this notion of you are not a finished product when it comes to skill and technique, and you have an obligation and responsibility to develop your skills and technique. I want to go to technique football. Uh, tell me how technique football works, uh, what you've developed, and how you've leveraged it and, and, and use it to help people develop their skills and technique. Yeah. So basically, like I was saying, over the years, I acquired through other coaches, through messing around on my own, uh, just watching things, VHS tapes, kind of like a large body of, of ideas on how you can, uh, obviously training alone in it for a team sport can be, you know, unrealistic. So how do you take um, the skills that you'll need with a group or in a competitive situation and break them down to uh, the most basic level where you can work on it on your own. And maybe that means using a wall. Maybe it means having someone throw you the ball in a certain way, uh, certain types of dribbling, balance work, juggling, all those things. So over the years, I mean, and I, after doing this for, I, and I still train on my own and find these creative ways. I go in parking garages, wherever I have to go. I've, you know, had now 20 plus years of like thinking of these ideas and being shown ideas. So my thought was, okay, I work with some players, some youth players, and a lot of players say, oh, I need to get better. My first touch needs to get better. I need to get better with the ball. I want better skill. And I'll work with some players in person or go do some clinics. But how can I share this vast body of ideas that I've, you know, accrued over time with the larger public and people all around the country, all around the world who maybe wouldn't otherwise have access. And the thing about in this day and age, there's so many video, there's so many videos out there about soccer. There are trick shot videos, freestyle videos, all kinds of training things. Uh, so there's almost too much information. And my idea was to give people a little bit of more of a guided plan is that if you want to develop the basic skills, sharpen those and also challenge yourself a little bit to do some more advanced stuff, here's kind of a blueprint. So technique football became um, my idea was to give people this blueprint is that you follow this training program and you'll get better like i've seen it for myself i can vouch for it there's no way you can do these this training with intentional focus and do it well and not become better so initially i was thinking of like okay i could give people a pdf like with their workout each week or like how to do it and long term my idea was um to make an app because everything is going in that direction and you have all the you know the nike training app the there's great ones for yoga, lifting, but there's nothing really that like leads people through a soccer training session. So I ended up um, about last year at this time, kind of at an in-between stage where I had this sick version for this really cool app that was going to have all these awesome features. Obviously, that's very hard and expensive to produce. And I didn't want to do the PDF version. So basically launched a first version that distributed the training sessions totally fine, but obviously is a uh, the beginning of a long-term vision for me. So how it works is that um, each week on there, I curate a 30-minute 
soccer training session for the subscribers. So you subscribe to gain access to these training sessions. And each week there's a new session that has uh, 10 juggling exercises, 10 dribbling exercises, and 10 exercises to do against the wall. And you can do them as many times as you want. You can break it up. If you're by a wall, you can just do the wall part. If you have 10 minutes before school, you can do the 10 minutes of juggling. If you want to go through the full session four times a day, you can. And um, it's all very self-sufficient. It requires minimal space and equipment. There's no, I tried to take away every excuse that a kid or even an older player may have that would prevent them from doing the training. So the idea is to put, um, to empower people to have this blueprint and be able to do it totally on their own without their parents driving them to a field, without, uh, you needing nice, nice green grass field and 10 soccer balls. Like no one has that. I don't even have that. I'm a professional player. So, um, that's really the idea behind Tech Me Football. It is, it's a technical training app, but the idea is to build this community of people who appreciate working towards mastery of the soccer ball and to have them all do the same training each week, obviously at different levels depending on the age and level of the player, but to participate in this training session that's a high-quality training session. It's all stuff that I've done myself, and I, will, I do the sessions myself in the offseason. Awesome. Are you seeing people – gravitate toward that or are you seeing people hesitant toward that especially you're around pro athletes all the time are you seeing them focus more on technique um is that something that you're seeing at, at your level um yeah you know i have a number of, of my pro peers who actually use the app in the off season i think that i i personally believe that that's an area of the women's and men's game in this country where we could devote a significant amount more time. And I think it's, um, it's been overlooked. Uh, you know, in the off season, I know a lot of people do a lot of weightlifting and physical training, which is actually for me personally, what I need to do because I've already spent so much time with the technical stuff, but a lot of people are doing things like that. And I think, um, neglecting areas, like you said, that still as pros, you could get significantly better and not just, we're talking about like 0.1% improvement. Like I think a lot of people's technique could improve, five, 10%, like make massive improvements. Um, so players do use it. I think it could definitely be used more. And I think players could be training with the ball a lot more. Um, in terms of younger players, it's been really interesting because it's caught on there. Are, there are a lot of people, like I had assumed who really do believe in this and, and love this training and want it and get competitive about it. And there's also been an interesting, um, it's interesting to see the other players that kind of get looped in. It's the players who are a little bit competitive but maybe had no idea what to work on before, so they're not that technically proficient, but they like the idea of like, okay, now I have something to compete in. I can try to get better. So it's kind of – it's been a really wide range of types of athletes and players who connect with it uh, from some who are not – really as comfortable with technique but now can go on their own and work on it and, and feel themselves getting better and not have to do it in front of a coach or be a little embarrassed and then there are the really elite like even some young I have a, a I had a six-year-old for a while who was really good like doing doing the training sessions on the app and totally got it and like got the whole mindset and was like working on it every day which is awesome to see so there's been a, a huge range of people it appeals to what's it been like for you being a business person and an entrepreneur uh, yeah, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, I, I did not know what I was getting into. I, I love business. I think it's a really fun puzzle. Um, but yeah, I, and I don't know why I thought this, but in my mind when I was launching this, I was like, okay, well, we'll create this app and then I'll just 
kind of curate the weekly session and that'll be my thing. And like, I don't know what, how I thought everything else was going to run in the whole business, but that's probably ended up being 5% of what I do. And then the rest of it is, you know, running the rest of the business. But I, um, yeah, I, I find I didn't study business or anything like that, but I'm learning as I go and I'm finding it absolutely fascinating and actually very, very similar to being an athlete. Uh, That was the exact question I was going to ask you. Tell me about the similarities and the differences. You've been at this for 10 years now playing pro soccer. You've been at your your business for, I think, like a year or so. Um, Walk me through the differences, similarities, and all that good stuff. Well, it's almost like I'm starting the process of of my soccer career again because you start like I said before with that vision and then you kind of have to map out a an intended route that maybe there are pivots along the way but okay so I have this vision to in 10 years be at a certain place with the business well okay what do I need to accomplish each year for that to happen and then take it down to like each quarter and then okay well then each day what has to be on my to-do list to get me a little bit closer so it's so similar in that sense of breaking down the big vision and it's really exciting to me to break that down and then figure out okay like what's the route to get there and maybe I start off on one route and I'm like oh that wasn't quite right you backtrack a little you go the other way so it's totally the same as um as kind of how I approach my soccer career uh but at the same time it's it's nice to that this one doesn't require me to be out and on my feet. So when I'm done with my training, I lay on the couch, I got my computer, uh, and I can do all my work from there. So it's a really good balance for me to have something to be ambitious about and focus on in that same way, but it doesn't take my physical effort. Do you write goals down? Um, I have a lot over the years. I've gotten away from it recently. Um, I'm always generally aware of my goals. I used to keep a lot more journals, um, and blog a lot more actually, which was kind of like my way of publicly delving into my goals. So, uh, I actually would like to get back into that. So I'm glad you reminded me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm here for. Uh, so let's say a a 11 year old girl is listening to this. She's looking up to you and, you know, in the same way that you looked up to that 1999 team and, you know, she has a dream of playing in, in the women's soccer league. And what would you give, what advice would you give to her? How would you talk to her about your experience playing professional soccer? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I would tell any player would be to set goals and to to then start to gain a clear understanding of what it will take to accomplish those goals. And I think, um, you know, to make a what could have been a very simple answer, a little bit more complicated. I think that a lot of people um, say they want something, but they don't understand what it means to get there. And I think that's the most important thing, not to crush anyone's dreams, but, you know, I go to a clinic and I, I ask the big group, you know, who wants to be a professional soccer player? And everyone raises their hand. And then I say, okay, whoever practices soccer on their own outside of their team? And like three people raise their hand. And I don't want to crush anyone's dreams, but I, I say to them, you know, just so you understand, there are literally millions of girls your age who will raise their hand and say that. So what are you going to do that's going to make you any different from any of those other players? And I think even as for a young, young player, that is the most important mindset. If they say, well, I want to be a professional, what is going to make you a professional? And it's about knowing yourself and knowing your strengths, first of all. Like, are you really fast? Are you really hardworking and disciplined? Are you super aggressive? What is it that you're good at? And what are the things that you will need to get better at and learn along the way to get there? And that means uh, watching soccer. It means enjoying it. I mean, if you don't 
enjoy it, you're going to have to put in a lot of work. So if you don't like it, that's the first thing. You should probably just not even start out on that mission. But it's amazing how many pro athletes don't love their sport. You yeah. know that. You know that. Like I would say that, but for women's soccer, it's actually a little different, okay. to be fair, because I think the rewards are so much less that if you don't fair. enjoy it, you're probably not still doing it, at least to enjoy it to some extent. So I, I know on the, on the men's side of things, there are a lot of people who are just extremely talented, and so they're doing it. But I think... I think there's less of that on the women's side. That's probably uh, that's probably true. You know, as you were sort of mentioned talking about that, I, I had this like thought of like, yeah, everybody wants to be happy. Like I ask people all the time when I do workshop, who here wants to be happy? Uh, and everyone raises their hand. But so few people understand, well, what is the science of happiness? And there's actually pretty good science on happiness. And what's the process of happiness look like? And I think a lot of people think that happiness is an outcome uh, when it's really the process of happiness that they need to focus on. I think it's the same thing in sports. It's like, okay, what is it? The outcome is a pro soccer player, but what does that process look like? And it's really all about finding joy in that process of improvement, like you said at the very beginning. Um, And I think that's the thing that, we need to continue to teach and learn and, and grow on is this notion of what does the process look like for me, for you, for really anyone who's interested in achieving their dreams. And a lot of times the process doesn't align with the dream for people that are trying to get to where they want to go. Oh, and by the way, there are going to be things that are out of your control that can also impact the dream whether you get injured, whether your talent, I mean, they're like talent matters. I don't know how, um, this notion of you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. it it's just not accurate. Um, like I was a pretty good basketball player growing up, but I'm five foot six and I was smaller than that in high school and scrawnier than I am today. Um, and I did not have the athleticism <laughs> to make up for it. I was not a freak athlete. I'm sorry, even though I wanted to be an NBA player, it was not going to happen. And I could have had the best mentality on the planet. It just wasn't going to happen. So I think finding that balance to, to your point of figuring out what are my strengths? Like, what's my superpower? Like, what is the thing that I know I can bring to the table? And is that elite? And can I pull on that strength and make that even better? And can I improve on that? And then being self aware to say, all right, well, what's my weakness? What happens if I can make that weakness? You know, what if, I, what if I'm mediocre at that? Like, what if it, it's not weak, but it, now it's mediocre? Is that good enough? And just being self-aware and self-reflective and, and having that process is, is so valuable. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think, you know, it's not something you want to, like, really bring to the attention of a young kids who say that. But at the same time, I kind of think it's a little bit of a – we're doing people a little bit of a disservice, I think, in our society to allow people to think that anyone and everyone can do whatever they want and – and I would also say, you know, you use the example of basketball, which is like obvious, a pretty obvious one. Like if you're not of a certain height or ability, like it, it's impossible. I would say that women's soccer is still at the point in this country where most of these kids, if they really committed themselves and did the right thing, would have a pretty good chance of like at least playing for, you know, a division one college. It's not like it, it's not like it's outside the realm, especially the kids that I'm interacting with. But it's the yeah, the, it's a lack of awareness and an understanding of what that actually means and what it means to work hard and work diligently and be self-aware. And I think that can start at a young age. It usually doesn't. But um, that's kind of like I would say it in a different way, obviously, to that 11 year old. But I think that's probably the most important message is to get what you to understand what your goal is and be honest about like what it's actually going to take. Yeah, I'm not a dream crusher. Like I always say, if you want to do it, I'm here. Like I'll help you get to where you want to go. But balancing grit with quit 
is really important. There is a time to quit. And there is a time, you used the word pivot earlier. There's a time to pivot. And I think if you're too blind to pivot, um, then you're not doing anyone you're doing. You're not doing yourself. You're not servicing yourself. You're doing yourself a disservice. Um, I want to end with just having you share your mentality as a pro athlete. Um, what do you do on game day to set your mind to perform? So you talked a lot about improvement. Uh, you talked a lot about my mindset has always been get better, get better, get better. But when you step across those lines, how do you set your mind? What's that routine look like? What are you doing to get yourself mentally ready to perform? Yeah, I think at this point in my career, it's really changed, especially towards um, the later stages now that I'm a, it's funny to say this, but like now that I'm an older pro player, which happened really quickly, um, it's become a lot more about um, reducing blocks to my performance than it is um, trying to add to my performance, if that makes sense. So at this point in my career, I still can get better, but I'm getting close to having maximized certain elements in my game. You know, I, I can definitely get a little stronger, faster, more explosive, but I'm pretty much, you know, I'm the athlete I am. I, I still work on my technical skills, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to come up with a new skill that all of a sudden is going to be a game changer for me. You know, I, I realize who I am as a player. So for me on game day, it's about staying relaxed and not feeling the pressure of all the work I've put in. Um, on that day because it's really easy especially when you care so much about what you do like I do and I've been doing this for a lot of years and had that serious mindset for so many years it's easy to say like okay I've worked for 20 whatever years on this like today's the day don't screw it up like it's kind of like sometimes I'll think like that like oh I've done this so many times like I better at least be good today after all this Uh, but that's obviously not the way you want to think of it so for me it's about being relaxed enough to just do what I do every day. And and for me, the more I can make game day like a training day, the more comfortable I feel. Some people need to pump themselves up and say, today is different. Got to get my adrenaline going. It's different than training. But for me, I try to train with the intention of the way I'm going to play. So, and, and every athlete with that is different. And I don't judge, you know, some people slack in training and then they're gamers and they show up and they do it in the big stage. That's not me. I'm somebody who needs to feel like I'm in training where I'm relaxed. I'm in my zone. I'm doing my thing. And if I can reproduce that in the game and stay relaxed then I'm so much better. So that's kind of my uh, performance mentality. There's something that happens that I love observing with veterans. And it usually happens when they get past that magic line of 30 and they're on the other side of 30 and I love watching this. It's like their mentality, they're so clear on what they need to do from a mental standpoint that they can still compete at a really high level even though the physical fitness isn't what it was when they were 20 or the fearlessness that they had to just sprint and go after things they can't do anymore. Um, but they're able to pick their spots and be efficient and be effective and it's one of the more amazing things that I'll watch is you watch a 20-year-old who's a Ferrari and just running around and, you know, filled with energy and fearlessness. Uh, and I always love the idea of blending that with the 30-something who has figured out how to pick their spots and be efficient. And that's typically where you find an athlete in their prime is where they have the mentality that they know who they are, they know what they bring to the table like a vet, um, but they still have that fearlessness combined with the athleticism to do things that are magical. And, but I love watching the vets because they often figure out not shortcuts, but ways to be efficient in their sport um, so that they can still be effective. And, and you'll talk, I'll talk to vets who'll be like, man, if I had this approach when I was 24, it would be so much better. 
And I think a lot of times you see the, tw- the early 20-somethings just go out like a bat out of hell and they're just running around with their head cut off and they don't think the game and they don't process things, um, but they're able to still compete because they have that fearlessness. So it's one of the things I'm amazed to see. I watch a lot of basketball. You can see it in basketball. The old heady dude who's 35 years old, 36 years old, but he is able to still compete because he just does those little things that are smart on the court, even though he doesn't have the athleticism that he might have had when he was 24. Yeah, and I think and that, that's like why a good team, I think, needs to have a combination of all of that. Or players who are in that in-between zone, like you said, who have a little bit of each. Because I think um, neither are completely effective on their own. They need, you know, they need one another to create success. Awesome. Yael, thank you so much for the time. I would love to end with you just promoting your website, Techni Football, um, your social media handles, where I know uh, you are super active there. You know, I enjoy following you on Twitter. Um, so give those things a shout out and uh, we'll finish with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I love talking about this stuff. As you can tell, this is, this is like what I think about all day. So I enjoyed the conversation a lot, but yeah, if you want to look me up personally, my personal website is um, www.yaelaverbush.com. I'm assuming what the spelling of my name will be included somewhere so you can find that. And that has links to um, all of my personal social media and also um, all the blog posts I've written, which is kind of like where I express a lot about um, my journey as a player and some of my own reflection. It's kind of, it's it's actually something I kind of write for myself, but then I enjoy uh, sharing with other people. So that's probably the best way to find my personal stuff. And then Techni Football, the business stuff, um, if you go to T-E-C-H-N-E-F-U-T-B-O-L.com, uh, that's the website. Um, Techni Football, just straight through is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. We do some fun skill of the day challenges on Instagram. So if you're interested in that and you're a soccer person really passionate about uh, the process of mastery. I encourage you to check it out. And it's really about what I'm trying to do is really form a community of people who care about the same thing. In addition to obviously having the app and subscription to train with the app. Awesome. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram. It's intentional underscore performers. And then we have our website, intentionalperformers.com. Yael, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know everyone will enjoy this conversation. If you do, please write us a comment on iTunes. Definitely give Yael a follow, uh, both her business and her personal accounts on social media. And I'm just really grateful that we got connected and I look forward to many more conversations with you about skill development, how the mental side plays a role as well. Um, So I know this won't be goodbye, but for now, so long and uh, look forward to many more conversations with you in the future. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I would go up to the schoolyard at night, spend 30 to 45 minutes with the ball against the wall. And my dad would come out. We would joke about things. It was a social experience. But 30 to 45 minutes of working on technique of striking the ball against a wall. It comes back every time. It's consistent. You can do tons of work in that amount of time.